You're listening to the Doxology and Theology Podcast, where we promote, encourage, and equip gospel-centered worship. For more information, visit us at doxologyandtheology.com. It is, it's a joy to be with you today, and um, my name is Joe Kreider. I serve here at Southern Seminary in the Department of Biblical Worship, and uh, we are so honored that this conference is here on our campus, and uh, Matt has been one of our students, and um, so we, when we were able to work this out, we were, we were really excited, excited about this. Let's have a word of prayer. And then, and then we'll begin and look at the topic of what, what's at stake on Sunday morning. Okay, let's pray. Father, we're grateful for the day, and we're grateful for uh, the, the joy of living and moving and having our being under your, under your hand. Lord, so much of that in our lives, all of it, undeserved, but through grace, we... we we move, we live, we have our being. And Lord, I pray that these moments that we spend together would be glorifying to you and that in some ways they might have an impact on subsequent moments that follow in our, in our worship leading lives, in our lives uh, as we respond to you. Thank you, Lord. May the words of our mouths and the meditations of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O oh Lord, our rock and our redeemer. In Jesus' precious name, Amen. I want to begin uh, with some thoughts this morning. Hey, Hannah, how are you? I'm well, how are you? Good. Good. That's okay. Good to see you. Uh, Al Moeller, who's the president of the seminary, I I was headed to a conference in Nebraska a couple years ago, and uh, he had written a book on leadership, and the leadership book uh, it's it, probably in the bookstore, actually, but it's um, it, it basically is conviction to lead, and there I think there's 25, 25 leadership uh, lessons in the whole idea of conviction to lead. And we, Amy and I, were flying out there. I was ready for the conference. I thought, you know what? It'd probably be a good idea if I if I read this book by our president, just just to make sure. You know, if anybody ever say, have you read the book? I could say honestly, I could say, yeah, I've read the book. So I got on the plane, and I began reading the book, and it was, and I, I was, I was not surprised that it was well written because he's a brilliant man. But what I was, what I was thrilled about was to see so many of the connection points between what he was talking about in leadership, and what we do in worship. And these are a few thoughts from the, that book that I've used for this particular lecture of what's at stake on Sunday mornings, and I think it really is appropriate for us as we begin to look at this whole topic. And here are some of his thoughts, that as human beings, we are set apart from the rest of creation in part because we are the keepers of stories. We can't even describe ourselves to someone else without some kind of story. So that's true of everyone in here. As we went around and I just shook each other's hand or shook, shook hands and found out we've got some people from Florida and, and, and folks from yeah, Florida and, uh, <laughs> and, and Minnesota, and I can say that almost Minnesota, uh, and Minnesota, and, uh, you know, places all over the country, but, but, we, but we share our lives through stories. We also relate and engage with life in almost every single way through stories. Well, the question that I have for you is, well, before that, but here's, here's something that point for Moeller. He says this, leadership that matters grows out of a leader's own belief that the story is true, that the story matters, and that it must, must both expand and continue. The story must be believed with conviction, told with conviction, and stewarded with conviction. I want to propose to you today that as worship leaders, we're keepers, of, we're keepers of the story of the gospel. And this is us as well. As I read this, it was jumping off the page thinking, this is what we do as worship leaders. And we live this out, and we, we have the joy of living this out, and we have the joy of sharing the story with our people every single week that we gather. And in that joy, we realize that this must really be something that, we, that grows out of our own belief, that grows out of our own life, that grows out of our own conviction, 
that yes, we preach the gospel to ourselves every day, realizing the glory and the majesty and the power and the wonder of God, and also realizing our great need. And as we do that and realize that Christ is the one who meets that enormous gulf, and as we do that, as we realize that story in and of ourselves, we realize that we get to share that with our congregation every single week. And we get to do that through, through our worship times. As, our, as the worship orders that we sculpt are, are in the contour, in the, in the contour and in the shape of the gospel of Jesus Christ. So this was, this was something that, that helped me to formulate more and more the realization that every single person that comes into our congregation has a story as well. They've been shaped by their culture. They've been shaped by their families. They've been shaped by, by the last week. They've been shaped by a loved one in the hospital. I mean, there are so many things that shape the stories of their lives. And what they need the most is to see the hope of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And as we do that, and as we realize that, we begin to realize the very weighty responsibility that we have, the wonderful joy, the wonderful responsibility that we have week after week of sharing that hope and sharing, sharing that gospel through, through our worship times. So whatever the context of leadership, and for us, it's obviously the worship leader. The Christian leader is accountable to that story. When I read this in Muller's book, I realized, wow, we, we as worship leaders are accountable to this story. And we, we, we take account of, there's an accountability aspect of this every time that we gather as well. That's why I think it's so important for us each week to look at our orders of worship, to look at what we do and ask the question, are we telling that accurately? This is who we are. This is what we believe and what we hope for others to know as well, the gospel of Jesus Christ. And here, the last phrase of this from Dr. Moeller's book is this. The leader is, is entrusted with the stewardship of these stories, and no leader can lead well if this story is not his own. So more and more, we realize the power of the gospel. More and more, we realize the, the need of the gospel in our own lives. A reminder that Tozer once said, and I, and I said, mentioned this in the session that I just taught a few moments ago, I think Tozer said not, not long before he died was the fact that he felt like he needed to be saved again. Not that he lost his salvation, but just the realization of the greater view he had of who God is, the more he realized how much he needed Christ. So the question, and Bob Coughlin asked these questions, and I think they're appropriate for us, is for us to ask the question, often, often about, about what we do as worship leaders. Bob says this, every Christian gathering tells a story. And the question we have for us is, what story do your Sunday morning meetings tell? And how well do they tell it? Is it the right story? Is the story being told clearly? Is it being told in a way that makes sense to our people? Are we helping them move from point A to point B in this story? Is the story, I'm going to add a few here, is the story told in the right order? How often does the story begin with us? I am a friend of God. I am a friend. Wait a minute. Is that the way I want to start the story? The story never begins with me. The story never begins with us. It always begins with God. And is it being told in a way that people understand it? And, is it's, and, it's, and it's not only understand it, but understand its relevance and that are affected by it. Now, in so many ways, we don't have control over a lot of this. this, is, this is, we, 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 we offer that control always to the Lord Jesus and the Spirit of God because we, we have no interest in manipulating people. But what we do have a responsibility is of being stewards of the story to tell it accurately and tell it well. So my question for you today is this. Do we fully realize that people's concept of God is often formed by the way we sculpt, the way we deliver, and we wave, the way we lead them in worship? And that concept of God is going to be really the key that we, that we begin to unpack here for the next few moments. 
A.W. Tozer, I was with Matt Papa last night. He spoke to our interns at our church here in Louisville. We have several interns and several uh, worship leaders at our three campuses. And we just asked my, Matt if he wouldn't mind spending some time with them and talking about his new book, Look and Live. Um, and I would just, I would highly recommend that book to you. It's a wonderful book. Uh, he's so thoughtful and so intentional about what he says. And he, he mentioned this quote probably three times. And, um, but this quote literally blew me off my feet several years ago. A.W. Tozer said this, What comes into our minds, from the knowledge of the holy, I believe, is the book that Tozer wrote it in, what comes into our minds when we think about God as the most important thing about us? Man's spiritual history will positively demonstrate that no religion has ever been greater than its idea of God. Worship, Tozer continues, worship is pure or base as the worshiper entertains high or low thoughts of God. For this reason, for this reason, the gravest question before the church is always God himself. And the most portentous fact about any man is not what he at any given time may say or what he may do, but what he in his deep heart conceives God to be like. The most important thing about you is what you believe about God. It's our concept, our, our mental image, our concept of who God is, is absolutely the most important thing about you. It's also the most important thing about your atheist neighbor down the street. But it's also the most important thing about every single person in our congregation. What they believe about God. Who God is. And it's our great joy and it's our great job is to expand and sometimes blow up their mind in reality of who God is. And what a joy and what a privileged responsibility that is. So my question, and the, and the quick and dirty answer to the question of this particular title today, what's at stake in our times of corporate worship? Simply this, people's view of God. And that is an enormous stake. And as we think about that, and as we plan our orders, as we, as we consider, as you, shut, as you think of your, in your mind's eye, the dear people that God has brought to the congregations that we serve, and you look out there and you see their faces, what a responsibility, what a stewardship that we have. And to accurately representing that and the, to the view of who God is. And that their story of God would begin to become more accurate and more, and more clear and larger the longer that they are with it, the more time that we have with them as we expose them to who he is through this right here. And this is the key, I believe, is the word of God. Chip Ingram was once on a mission trip many years ago. And on that mission trip, I believe he tells the story that he couldn't sleep. And he was in, he was in, a, he was in a, a country, I believe in maybe in, in Asia, perhaps East Asia, and he couldn't sleep. And the, and the, the missionary realized that he was, he was tr having real trouble. So the missionary came out and he said, Chip, are you ever going to go to, I mean, what, what can I do for you? And Chip said, just get, you got a book that I, and, and so the missionary said, look, if you're going to read a book, read this. And he handed him A.W. Tozer's The Knowledge of God, or Knowledge of Holy. So, he, so Chip thought initially, I'm just going to sit down and read this thing and probably just be able to fall asleep finally. Well, he never went to sleep. He was absolutely captivated by Tozer. So Ingram ends up writing a book based on Tozer's work called God as He Longs for You to See Him. And in that, he takes Tozer's quote and Tozer's idea and, and shapes them just a little bit differently. But I think it's helpful for us as we consider, as we consider this. Ingram says this, Nothing, nothing in all of your life will impact your relationship with God, your relationship with people, your view of yourself, your decisions, and your purpose like the way you think of God. Everything in your life, consciously or unconsciously, comes back to one thing. Whom do you visualize God to be in your heart? Who we are and what we become cannot be separated from our understanding of God. It's our great privilege as worship leaders. It's our great privilege in our stewardship. I love this from Bob Coughlin. He says this, Our great privilege as worship leaders is to help people see through the eyes of faith how great God has actually revealed himself to be. 
If our songs aren't specific about God's nature, His character, and His acts, we'll tend to associate worship with a style of music, a heightened emotional state, a type of architecture, a day of the week, a meeting, a reverent mood, a time of singing or sound. We'll think of all the things that accompany worship rather than the one we're worshiping. Worse, we'll create our own what? Views of God portraying Him as we like to think of Him. This is probably one of the most most uh, as, I, as I see young worship leaders, one of the, one of the things that, that is, is perhaps the con- most concerning sometimes is, is that I see what they, I see what they, I hear what they say between songs. I see the songs that they choose. I don't sense anything other than, than, than the, they haven't really thought through what what picture am I are we are we portraying what what vision are we giving what biblical understanding are we transferring to our people for them to have a better clearer more wonderful more more robust if I can use that term view of who God is and it only comes through the scriptures and that's what's so disappointing when I go to worship conferences and I go to worship services and this is never used. This, this isn't even, I mean, I think, where's the word of God? I was at a huge, huge church on the East Coast and, and, and for the first 30 minutes we, we sang over and over and over songs that were mostly about very anthropocentric, songs kind of about what I'm going to do or who I am in relationship to God and not one word of scripture. I thought to myself, you know what, we, all the people in this room are hyped up right, right now about worshiping worship. Not one of them has, had, has, been, has been confronted with a biblical view of the power and the majesty and the transcendence of a holy, righteous, just God. And what a disappointment that was. John Stott says this, all true worship is a response to the self-revelation of God in Scripture, God in Christ in Scripture. And arises, again, you see this, this, this theme that we'll just pound through here. The, all of these quotes and all of these citations that I'm using, you can tell that I'm a teacher, that, 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 uh, that, that arises from our reflection on who He is and what He has done. The worship of God is evoked, informed, and inspired by what? The vision of God. <laughs> And this is my favorite of this is my favorite part about this. The true knowledge of God will always lead us to worship. Seeing him for who he is will always lead us to worship. That's what that's what doxology, that's what theology in doxology is. A true knowledge of who he is will always lead us to realize that I cannot get any lower. It is not possible for me to get down low enough to worship you. Because we have a better view, we have a more accurate view, we have a biblical view of who God is. Isaiah 66 is a, is a, wonderful, is a wonderful example of, this, of, of somewhat of this order. And, 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 the, and a way for us to look at this was we think of, as we think of, of, of our view of who God is. At the beginning of Isaiah 66, and we've heard, I believe maybe the one of the worship leaders used this particular uh, passage the other night, but it's a great way, it's a great way as we, as we help our congregations remember. When we start worship, it, so many times you'll, you'll see a worship leader walk up on stage put their guitar, go to the piano. How y'all doing? Well, what, what's, who are we responding to in that moment? We're responding to the worship leader. What we were all supposed to, fine. Yeah, fine, thanks. What about, what about, we begin a worship by saying something like this. Listen to the words of Isaiah and, and, and listen to who, who God describes himself to be. Thus says the, says the Lord, heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. Where then is a house you could build for me? And where is a place that I may rest? For my hand made all these things. Thus all these things came into being, declares the Lord. We are only here because we have been, have been 
put into being because of who he is and what he is and, and the, the vastness, all the things that we could respond to and relate to there. But then look what it says right next to that in verse 2. My hand made all these things, thus all things came into being, declares the Lord. And then here, this is a great line for, worship, for worshipers. But to this one I will look, to him who is humble and contrite of spirit and who trembles at my word. Boy, that's a different way to begin a worship service. And we're guided by this. We're directed by this. The songs flow from this. Our ideas, our thoughts, our transition statements flow from this. All the ways that we can, we can move from that point in the rest of our worship. And what, we have, what have we done right away? We have, given, we have given people a vision of who God is and a vision of who we need to be, contrite and humble, in, uh, who is humble and contrite of spirit and who does what? Trembles at his word. Romans, let's go there real quickly, and, and we'll, we'll look at a couple passages uh, as, we, as we do this together. Let's just take a look at this, and, and many of you, this is very much review. This is very much um, things that you know of, but if these can be, here, here's, may I just say this? I think, I think one of the values of, of coming to a conference like this is not always necessarily getting all new information it's getting, it's getting different ways for you to articulate timeless truths. Is that you've heard people say things this week that you think, wow, you know, I've always thought that, but I've never heard it expressed like that. My, my iPad is packed from the first few sessions of this week, thinking, I cannot wait to tell, I cannot wait to use that. I can't wait to express that. Um, one of the things I, I heard Matt Papa say last night, he said, he said, if you worship anything other than Jesus Christ, that which you worship will, will be crushed under the weight of your worship. Because he, he said, there, mechanical things, if you worship mechanical things, they'll break down. If you worship people, they'll disappoint. If you worship, and he just went on all these things, that if you worship, they will disappoint you. Nothing can stand up under the weight of your worship except Jesus Christ. That gave, me a new, that gave me a new sense of vocabulary to articulate that, not only in a time of worship, but to our students and to my own being. And I, and I think, so these things are going to be things that you've, you've heard before, you've seen before, but I'm praying that through a time like this, it may be some ways that you can articulate this perhaps more effectively to the people that you serve. And if that will happen, I'll just, I'll be so grateful if that would be the case. Romans 1, 18, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who surpass, suppress the truth and righteousness, and unrighteousness. Because that which is known about God is evident within them. For God made it evident to them. For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood through what has been made, so that they are without excuse. For even though they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks, but they became futile in their speculations, and their foolish heart was darkened. Professing to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the incorruptible God for an image in the form of corruptible man and of birds and four-footed animals and crawling creatures." After reading that scripture, do you see the connection point of, of how important it is for our people on a daily basis to make sure that we connect them to a real view of who God is? And how easily and how often the culture absolutely just pounds the people in our pews day after day with, with wrong views, with inaccurate views, with crazy views of who God is. And what we have to do and what, what our part of our responsibility and our stewardship is that when we, when we come before them, we realize that and part of that is a recalibrating of their hearts to be pointed and directed to the God of the Scriptures, to the God of the universe, to Jesus Christ in His glory. Human beings were created worshiping. That's the point of Romans 1. Where this worship is abandoned, the result is not a state of no worship, but a state of false worship. For a human being, there can be no vacuum of non-worship. One is either submitted to God in the doing of His will and the glorifying His name, or one is submitted to someone or something else. We've got, we've got two options. 
neither of which are, are non-worship. We are always worshiping. Always. As Papa said last night, you're, or he said this morning, I can't remember which, or yesterday afternoon, you, your worship is aimed, right? The error described in this Romans passage is not the neglect of worship, but the exchange of worship. And that's why we've got to be so careful in our reminder of, to our people of who they are. Our definition of worship reveals our view of who God is. Those two are inextricably connected. Our definition of worship. I'm just going to throw some up here real quickly. Just some people's definitions of worship. And we'll just talk about them. Louis Giglio says this. Louis Giglio says, Worship is my response to what I value most. He goes on later in his little book called The Air I Breathe to unpack that a little bit more and to make it a little bit more specific to the Christian faith and to, to faith in Christ. But it generally, for a general definition, this is what he says. It's, pardon me. It's my response to what I value most. And for Giglio, and this might be helpful for your people, because sometimes, we, sometimes this stuff... Sometimes this stuff doesn't get down low enough on the ladder of abstraction for us to really make it work for our people. Let me, let me just say this. My wife, Amy, is the English teacher, one of the English teachers at Boyce College here on the campus. And she also runs the writing lab here at Southern Seminary. And what she's constantly telling her students, and she constantly tells me, is that you've got to get down the ladder of abstraction so that people can take this and really understand what you're talking about. And that ladder of abstraction could be animal, okay, dog, okay, going lower on the ladder of abstraction, cocker spaniel, okay, we're getting lower, male black cocker spaniel, yeah, we're getting really low, male black cocker spaniel dog named Travis, who's Travis Kreider. I mean, we, we've just gone down to the, to the very, well, here's, here's something on the ladder of abstraction that sometimes we can help our people in, in helping them know, what do you value most? What is, what's, what's shaping the desires of your heart? Uh, Ray Ortland. Johnny, were you there that day Ray Ortland spoke? Uh, did Norton Hall play that day? Okay. Ray Ortland spoke, and I think he spoke on Psalm 1. And his whole, his whole his, the beginning of his message was this. Your desires determine your destiny. And, and, he, and he went through an entire, he went through an entire exegesis he, 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 of, of Psalm 1, of the righteous man and the unrighteous man. And it, and it came down to a very specific things that we could, that, that people could take away with. And sometimes I think we talk of worship in these very, these, these conceptual forms, but we don't talk about worship on a, on a form where people get. So this whole idea of my response to what I value most, we look and we think, what do I value most? Giglio says something really interesting. He says this. He says, you follow the trail of your time, your money, your thoughts, and your energy, and that trail will eventually lead you to a throne, and whoever or whatever is on that throne is who or what you worship. And sometimes that can be helpful for our people to help them and, and to realize, okay, what are you worshiping? Where's your heart pointed? Where's the, where are the desires of your heart pointed right now? Buddy Owen's definition of worship is this. Authentic worship is a response to an authentic encounter with the living God. When we worship God, we declare his worth. But in order to declare God's worth, we must first discover his worth. Do you see how this connects to the, our view of who God is? Everything keeps going back to that thesis for this particular uh, topic today. And that brings me to a question. And Buddy Owens asked this question, what is God worth to you? In other words, who is he in your heart? Who is he in your mind? Who, who, how has he been formulated? Is, he been in, is, he inform, is, he in, is the Bible, is the scripture informing your heart in your mind of who he is? What is it that's shaping the desires of your hearts? Noel Dew in his book called Created for Worship says this, men and women are inveterate worshipers. We go back to our idea of Romans 1 here, don't we? Worship belongs to their essential nature. The expression of human sin is that the worship for which they were created is exchanged for idolatrous worship. They sin not by not worshiping, but by worshiping wrongly. Similar to what Greg Bruton said in the quote that I mentioned to you earlier. 
Warren Wiersbe says this, worship is the natural, heartfelt, genuine, emotional response to the character, the works, and the grace of God. What, when we think about the character, the works, and the grace of God, what are we doing? We're, 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 dis, we're, we're beginning to, to put into place a more fully orbed view of who God is, right? And MacArthur, worship is all that we are responding to all that he is. And how is all that he is, how is that being formulated? How is that being formed in our minds and in our hearts? Again, we go back to the word of God from that as well. A couple more definitions that might be helpful for you. And I'm happy to send these to any of you. If you'd like me to send this PowerPoint, I would be honored to do that. Um, It would be my pleasure to send these to you if that would be helpful for you. Just give me your email address after this, and uh, I'll send I'll send you that and um, uh, anything else that you you might need. David Peterson says this: the worship of the living God is the, and true God is essentially an engagement with Him on the terms that He proposes and the way that He alone makes possible. So, so how do we know that? The only way to know that is to know this, is to be students of this and to help our people understand this. Bob Coughlin, Christian worship is a response of God's redeemed people to his self-revelation that exalts God's glory in Christ in our minds, affections and wills in the power of the Holy Spirit. Wonderfully Trinitarian in that uh, particular uh, definition, and it's it's, uh, just helpful for us to have some of these. John Piper, we were created to worship. That's why missions is so important. However, missions is not the ultimate goal of the church. Worship is. Missions exist because worship doesn't. Worship is ultimate, not missions, because God is ultimate, not man. When this age is over, the countless millions were redeemed fall on their faces before the throne of God. Missions will be no more. It's a temporary necessity, but worship abides forever. And in that, we we see the connection point again of accurately understanding and being having our, our view and our vocabulary, vocabulary of God continually expanding based on the Word of God. Never, never said that quote with a worship pastor who had been John Piper's worship pastor for how many years, Chuck Stedham, were you there? Was he there while you were there? 18? Yeah. Yeah. So if you want to know a little bit more about that. There's the man right there. Chuck really wrote it. Piper. Chuck really wrote it. Piper. <laughs> Ghostwriter. Yeah. That is great. I cannot believe you guys are sitting in this room right now. It's crazy. All right. I like this. I like this definition. This is William Temple, 1881. Uh, a little bit older. I, I think this is really helpful. Worship is the submission of all of our nature to God. It is the quickening of conscience by His holiness. So right there, we're thinking about, okay, how, what aspects are informing us of His holiness? It's our view of who He is, right? The nourishment of the mind with His truth. <laughs> Again. The purifying of imagination by His beauty. The opening of the heart to his love. (laughs) The surrender of will to his purpose. And all of this gathered up in adoration, the most selfless emotion of which our nature is capable. And therefore, the chief remedy for that self-centeredness, which is our original sin and the source of all actual sin. I think the ancients used to have a phrase, in curvatu sensei, meaning that people, we just have a tendency that we have a very propensity to curve in on ourselves. And what worship does is to help us to get our eyes off of ourselves and onto the glorious one, onto God himself, onto Christ Jesus. As we, as we get to know, so we keep going back to this idea. What's at, stake on, what's at stake on Sunday mornings? People's view of who God is. All of these definitions support that as well. They're predicated, these definitions are predicated on a biblical view of God. Can we have an accurate view of God apart from the gospel? No. Can we have an accurate view of God apart from transcendence, his transcendence and his imminence? No. Can we have an accurate view of God apart from the scriptures? No. It's not possible. 
as we synthesize this and kind of bring this to a, a close, and a, if we have a little time, does anybody know what time this session's over? 4.30. Thank you. I'd like to give you, I'd like to, to point you to a couple places in the scripture, one's place specifically, and it's, we're going to look at Paul's letter to the Philippian church, and Paul's use, and really throughout the New Testament, the use of canticles, the use of songs, and why, in, in some of these places, so many places, songs being very wonderful views of, of who God is. Before we go to, before we go to Philippians, um, if we, if you wouldn't mind, uh, Looking at a couple other places, we could see um, we could see in uh, the end of Romans 11 would be a place. I think that was used earlier today. Somebody in the somebody in the in our um, sessions used the end of Romans 11. That's that is a considered a canticle um, that that is used. And then also uh, there are uh, the Philippians as a canticle or a song. There's also a, a place that I'd like for you to see. In Colossians, we're going to sing this tomorrow at church. Uh, God of the Ages. Uh, it's a song by a, a former student of mine named Travis Doucette, and he basically took it right out of Colossians. He took the song right out of Colossians two. Excuse me, Colossians one fifteen. And this is this is a beautiful description of who God is, and it's a song. If you have a Holman version, if you have a um, I'm not sure if the ESV does it or not, but many versions will have this that, that, that looks like a psalm right here, as it, as it would be written like a song. But it says this, He is the, Jesus, Jesus is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by Him all things were created, both in the heavens and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through Him and for Him. He is before all things, and in Him all things hold together. He is also the head of the body, the church, and He is the beginning of beginning, the firstborn from the dead, so that He Himself will come to have first place in everything." And I love this. What we're going to, I've asked Pastor, we'll start our time tomorrow morning with prayer. And I've asked Pastor if he would use Colossians chapter 1, around verse 9, uh, I believe it's around 9, where it says this. Um, we have not ceased to pray for you and to ask that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding, so that you will walk in a manner worthy of the Lord to please him in all respects bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the what? The knowledge of God. Do you see how that helps our congregation? Immediately we're asking the Holy Spirit. We're praying just like Paul did for the Colossian church. We're praying for our people. Pastor will be praying for our people. We'll have that prayer time. We'll come out of that prayer time into holy, holy, holy. And then after holy, holy, I'll say this, I'll, my, my transition will be something like, hey, now let's sing. It will be, now listen to what Paul says next. Paul uses a song, and listen to what he says next. For he rescued us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. And then he describes who Jesus is. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of creation. We'll use that passage, and then it goes right into the song. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of creation. He is the first, the last, the one who matters most. It goes right into that particular song. Scripture God in worship, who is God, transcendence, revelation and response. So, we see throughout the scriptures that, that songs were used to help people uh, with their view of who God is. Now, let's take a look at, the, at, the, at Paul's letter to the Philippian church. Paul was dealing with the Philippian church, was dealing with, with the Gnostics, I believe, had infiltrated uh, some of the Philippian uh, believers. There, there, were, there were doubts about who Christ was. There were doubts about his resurrection. And, and Paul, didn't, Paul didn't write four more chapters in the book of Philippians. 
Paul didn't write a dissertation. He wrote what, what some theologians, some historians call the Carmen Christi or the hymn to Christ to help them recalibrate their view and their understanding of who God is. So we go back and we see again that this is so vital. This isn't just now that we're talking about the importance of what's at stake on Sunday mornings, people's view of God. What was at stake for Paul and the Philippian church? People's view of who God is, right? And so what did he do? He wrote this. He wrote this incredible passage in Philippians chapter 2. And let's take a moment and, and, and consider this. Before we do that, Michael Card wrote a book called Scribbling in the Sand. It's a book on art, or God, Christ and creativity. If you've not read it, it's worth, it's worth every bit of it. It's how Mike Cosper first ha- heard about Harold Best, because Harold Best has a whole section in, in this book. And uh, several other artists do too. But this is what Michael says about this, and I think it's really helpful. There was a time when the early church began to forget who Jesus was. It was badly in need of a song to help it remember. False teachers had crept in and were singing false songs about Jesus. There was confusion about the nature of his divinity. There were doubts as to the reality of his resurrection. People were losing sight of what his life had been all about. At the heart of it all, they had forgotten what the incarnation of Jesus really meant. In the midst of their struggle to remember Jesus, Paul provided them not with a theological tractate, but with a simple, profound song. There are only one verse in a single chorus told them all they would ever need to know about who Jesus is. Look at this right here. Verse 5, chapter 2. Have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus, who although, and right here we go into, what are we doing? We're giving a picture of who God is, right? What a great passage for worship. What a great thing for us to remember. And this is a song. Who, although existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking on the form of a bondservant, and being made in the likeness of men, being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And for this reason also, God highly exalted him and bestowed upon him the name which is above every name, so that the name of Jesus every knee will bow, of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and that every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Wow. What a joy. What a great in a song. And this is what Paul gave the Philippian church. Here's a song. Remember it. I want to push the pause button real quickly and tell you a story that absolutely just impacted my life so much in this particular area. There's a, there's a gentleman named Nick Ripken who, who was an IMB missionary for years. And he wrote a book called The Insanity of God. Has anybody seen that book? If you have an opportunity to, to read the book called The Insanity of God, I would really, really encourage you to do so. And here's what the book is about. The book is about this. For 10 years, the IMB told Nick Ripkin, which is not his real name, actually, but told Nick Ripkin, we want you to go and we want you to really literally travel the globe and we want you to go to people who have been persecuted. Christians who've been persecuted and we want you to record and we want you to we want you to record the the whole we, we want you to, to research the persecuted church. So Nick Nip Gripkin literally goes all over the world. He goes to China, he goes to Russia, he goes to the Sudan, he goes all, literally all over the world, and he spends time, days with people, interviewing them about persecution. Well, I happened to be at a wedding at the IMB uh, Learning Center. One of our dear friend's daughter, uh, he works at the IMB, one of our dear friend's daughter uh, was getting married, and they were getting married there at the IELTS, at the Learning Center, and Nick Ripkin was there. And Nick Ripkin uh, and I were talking after the service, and he looked at me and he said, what are you doing? And I said, I'm going to be, and this was when I was still in Virginia, and I'd just been, I'd just been contacted by Southern to come here and teach. And, and I said, I'm going to go to Southern Seminary and, and serve on the Department of Biblical Worship. And he said, you know, that's where I graduated many moons ago. And I said, I said, yes. He said, will you do me a favor? And I said, sure. He said, will you tell every class that you teach this story? And first of all, he's kind of a hero to me as a missionary, a lifelong missionary of the IMB who's literally been in some of the most incredible places in the world. And so I look at him and I said, absolutely, I will. 
in the back of my mind, I'm thinking, man, that's a, that's a really difficult promise to make. But okay, I will. It has not been a hard promise to keep because this is what he told me. He said, Joe, he said, 100%, he said 100% of missionaries who were victorious through their persecution had one thing in common. He said 100% of all Christians who were persecuted and who were victorious through their persecution, 100% of them that I interviewed had one single thing in common. He said, do you know what that is? I said, I'm really wanting to know what that is. He said, they all had a song that was laced with the gospel of Jesus Christ and that, that literally was, was, was not only biblically bathed, but it was, it was a picture of Jesus. Please tell your students to write songs that are gospel songs. Tell them to write, to write songs that, that portray and declare and pro, proclaim the glory of Jesus Christ, the power of the cross. And he just kept pounding. He said, We've, our church has to have songs. He said, that's what they'll go to. That's what they will go to. Their minds will immediately go to songs. And he said, you want those songs in the life, in the heart, in the mind of the people in your churches. Some, and my brother Ron Mann would maybe, I, I don't know how, Ron, if you'd, would say that this Philippians passage is in a chiastic structure or not? Would you say that it is? Okay, thanks. I'm really glad you said that. The idea of this chiastic structure is this, is, is the, the, that have this attitude in yourselves that is also in Christ Jesus. Christ Jesus being humble, humble to the point of being made, obviously, like us, like us, servant, the nexus of the chi, the nexus of the X, results in radical obedience, absolutely radical obedience to the point of death on the cross. Radically obedient to the word and to the will of God. And what results? What results? Christ being, Christ being humble servant, radically obedient, is exalted as Lord. When we, when we have this attitude in yourselves that is also in Christ Jesus, humble servants, if anything we should be as worship leaders, if we want people to see who God is, right? Then, then may they begin to see the gospel lived out in us. May they begin to see Christ in us. May we be transformed more and more into the image of Jesus Christ. And if that's the case, then we take on, we, we want to become who, we want to become, we want to live our lives in that model. Have this attitude also in yourselves that is in Christ Jesus. Humble servants. We're not the rock stars. We're not the, we're not the, the, the sage on the stage. We are serving our people. Radically obedient to the will and to the word of God. Understanding what that will is, understanding what that word is. And what happens? Jesus Christ is exalted as Lord. In that picture, in that picture of that Paul desperately wanting his people to have a better, more accurate view of Jesus, he writes a song, and the song is so deep, the song is so well crafted, the song is scripture. But it, it is wonderfully, wonderfully articulated in a way that it, it, it has, a, it has this, uh, uh, this amazing reality of, of not only giving people a picture of who God is, but a charge to the people as well. For us to be humble servants, radically obedient to the word and the will of God, so that Jesus Christ might be exalted as Lord. So how does, this comp, how does this concept impact the way that you lead your congregation? I'm praying that, I'm praying that, that this concept might help in some ways that, that you begin. Brian Chappell says this, This is more than a matter of choosing music that's properly respectful or adequately relevant. 
Our worship should show the face of Jesus to those who have gathered and to those who need to gather to worship him. Look at this. They see him when they understand his gospel, making our task to represent that gospel in all that we do. Just a few more slides and I'm done. Debbie and Ron Reinstra wrote a book called Worship Words. Now think about this. As we lead people in our congregational worship and we're wanting them to develop and to, 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 to focus and to, 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 to develop the vocabulary mentally and in all ways and to shape and form the desires of their hearts, think about this. When else do you have the opportunity to put words in people's mouths? Worship language, like all worship, is formative. What's it forming? people's view of God. So is it important for us to choose texts of our songs wisely? Oh my. Maybe now more than ever. <laughs> Here's some things that they mentioned. When we, the words we hear, sing, and speak in worship help what? They form what? Our images of God. Our understanding of what the church is and does our understanding of human brokenness and healing, our sense of purpose as individuals in a church, our religious affections, the way that we express awe and humility and delight and contrition and hope, our vision of wholeness for ourselves and all of creation, our practices of engaging with God, with each other and with the world. We, do you fully realize that the way you sculpt, lead, and deliver people through, through the worship process, it literally, literally has a huge impact on the way they think of who God is? Do you realize the weight of our charge? Do you, weigh, do you realize the, the, the importance of what we do? And I'm not, I'm not saying, boy, look at us, and, and, and realizing that we, the only way we can do that effectively is absolute dependence on the Holy Spirit and the Word of God. If we try this on our own, we will fail. I love this quote by Mike Cosper. He says this in Rhythms of Grace. As we plan our orders of services, discerning the content to include, we shape the beliefs and devotional lives of our church members. This is, this is so Mike. It's a crazy pastoral opportunity if you think about it. We shape the devotional lives of people. How important is that? So what will you ask yourself the next time before you sculpt an order of worship? The next time you think about the corporate gathering? The next time that we gather our communities together? I pray that it just might be, God, what's at stake? And it's these people's view of who God is. And may that be the case, that we would be more and more wanting and willing to, to do that. Will our time together cause people's view of, trust in, and desire for God's glory in Christ and Him crucified? Will it increase? And I pray that it does.